D.L. Moody, the great uh, 19th century evangelist, was once asked, how could you possibly open the Bible, it doesn't matter whether it's Nehemiah or the Psalms or Leviticus, whatever you preach on, you end up with an altar call to receive the gospel. And he responded, well, it doesn't matter where I start, I always make a beeline to the gospel. Now, you might expect that comment from a full-time evangelist like the great D.L. Moody. But again, maybe there's something here we should take notice of. When you read all of the sermons in the book of Acts, the apostles start at many different places. They actually start from texts from the law, the prophets, and the writings, but they always bring it to the gospel. They always bring it to the centrality of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. In the light of the empty tomb, they see Jesus everywhere. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah. Jesus is the rock out of which water came in the wilderness. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the prophet about whom Moses said, he'll be like unto me. Jesus has become the archetype of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Jesus, is, we're told, is the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. Jesus is Lord, the kurios, uh, under whose feet all nations will be placed. He seems to fill the whole frame, law, priest, king, and sacrifice. Jesus seems to end up the subject of every sermon, the fulfillment of every promise, and the hope of the final eschaton. In our text today, we see that this you know, God-ordained, spirit-empowered, Christocentric preaching is the source of the boldness of the apostolic message. Today's sermon is entitled, Pentecost Revisited, Power for Bold Preaching. If you actually take time to look at all of the sermons in the New Testament, you find, a bit to our chagrin, that the apostles never preach like we do today. It doesn't happen. You never hear about some clever idea. They never offer a self-help technique. They never offer even a moralistic admonition. The three themes which dominate most of modern preaching. What do they preach? They preach a person. They preach Jesus Christ. We're in this fourth part in this series uh, of the Spirit-Filled Life. And in uh, part three, last time in Acts 2, we saw the importance of the coming of the Holy Spirit, and it, was in, it empowered the church for global witness. And what I said in that sermon was that we are actually going to unfold over time three major themes, which we find all in Acts, though they're also in the epistles we'll eventually get to. But in all in Acts, we see three major themes developed. Like what does the Holy Spirit do in the life of the church, in the life of your life and mine? And we'll see that there are three. We've already unfolded some of these, but the disruptive power for global witness, uh, two, the discerning wisdom for faithful living, and third, divine holiness for sanctified purity. Those three themes resonate throughout uh, the book of Acts. Now, you notice that those three themes identify with our, you know, our feet, uh, going out to the ends of the earth, preaching the gospel. That discerning wisdom is about our mind, thinking rightly about the world, the culture, the, the Word of God, learning to think well by the power of the Spirit. And then, of course, divine holiness connected to our heart in living in sanctification. 
In Acts 3, we have a pretty detailed narrative of, uh, I think, another theme, uh, example of the empowered witness for the church, where Peter and John are entering the, te- entering the temple, and they see a blind, lame beggar, uh, I'm sorry, a lame beggar who had been lame since birth, and he was crippled, and he was forced to beg for a living. And in that passage, you'll recall that Jesus uh, comes to them through the preaching of the apostles, and he, they say, Silver and gold have I none. What I have I give unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And the man is healed. He enters the temple walking and leaping. Now now notice that the lame were, by Jewish tradition at least, were not allowed to enter into the temple. So this is actually reaching a group that had been marginalized. If you actually know the Gospels, in Matthew 21, 14, Jesus overturned that and brought the lame uh, and blind others into the temple. But this man was not there, apparently, and he is walking and leaping and praising God. And this is the reminder of what we're told in the Gospels, greater things uh, that shall you do because I go to the Father. So the ministry of Jesus is unfolding in the life of the apostles. We're seeing all through Acts, one of the themes, and it works both ways, the good news is we are doing the works of Jesus. Miracles unfold through the church the way they unfolded through Jesus. But also you have the joy of the response and people being healed, but also the opposition, in, in this case from the religious authorities, that also happens like it happened with Jesus. We, we, when you become like Jesus, you have to take the whole package. That's part of uh, Bishop Kege's message yesterday, I think, to us is very, very prophetic for us. So preacher, Peter uh, preaches in Solomon's portico. Uh, he boldly proclaims that God had foretold that Christ would suffer through the prophets. He would foretold that. He preaches the centrality of Christ. And during the sermon, remember in Acts 2, there was this huge response and 3,000 came forward. So in some ways, Acts 2 is more of like what you would expect in a typical church service, right? You know, you preach, have an altar call, and 3,000 come forward. (laughs) Happens all the time. But even though it's a grand scale, it follows the pattern we expect. You know, you preach the gospel, people respond. Okay, in this particular passage, and today, they preach the gospel. Before they could have the altar call, they're arrested and taken away to the authorities. Now, even with that, 2,000 people responded. And that is amazing. I'd like to see the day when pastors, even as they're being hauled off to the authorities, people are coming forward. Something's happening. This is disruptive. So the authorities want to know by what power, and notice they say, or name, do you do these things? Now notice the emphasis on name. It's the root of the authority of the apostles. They're not promoting you know, webinar, web, webinars. They're not promoting self-help techniques. They say it is the name of Jesus, which is the power of our preaching. Notice this is not a conflict with the secular unbelieving culture, but with the religious authorities. They, had, they were not ordained priests. They had no official sanction. They weren't seminary graduates. They didn't have any letters behind their name or titles in front of their name. To call Peter the first pope is a little anachronistic, don't you think? All they had was the name of Jesus. So we then get the third sermon in the book of Acts. And notice in verse 8, after the accusation about what power name, Peter turns his defense And it says in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, 
say, wait a minute, stop a minute. Wasn't Peter already filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, in Peter's life alone, Peter was in the upper room in John chapter 20. When Jesus met with the disciples, he breathed on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Peter is there in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit falls, they speak in tongues, the power of God comes upon them. So here's Peter being filled with the Spirit again. Now, if I had received the personal breath of Jesus on me, and Jesus said to me, receive the Holy Spirit, and if I had actually been there on the day of Pentecost, if someone had said to me, have you received the Holy Spirit? I said, oh yeah, I, have, I am like a double barrel man. I mean, I was in the upper room. Jesus breathed on me. Have you had Jesus breathe on you? Jesus breathed on me. I, I was at the day of Pentecost. I was there when the, when the, you know, the rushing wind, the tongues of fire on my head. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Yet here he is today, and by the way, it happens again in this chapter before it's over with. Twice in this chapter, we find Peter is again filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that teach us? It teaches us that the day of Pentecost is not a singular event in the same way as the you know, cross, resurrection, ascension are singular events. Now, the day of Pentecost is you know, never, never less than a day. I mean, this is a red-letter day in the life of the church. But in some ways, Pentecost is meant to be one of those days that kind of like the never-ending day, right? It's a Pentecost that continues to unfold in the life of the church, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So in verse 31, we find that Paul, Peter will be filled with the Holy Spirit a fourth time. And of course, Paul in Ephesians 5.18 tells us, do not get drunk with wine. Another reference to Acts 2. Remember they thought they were being drunk with wine? And I said, I'm really looking forward to the day when people come in here and think we're all drunk. Yeah, yeah, this is online. Yeah, we're hoping, we're hoping for that. I want them to come here and say, wow, what's happened to these people? They're filled with the Spirit. So here they are. They've been filled with the Spirit. And Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He's saying this is better than drink, drinking wine. This is a more profound movement of God. It literally means do not continually keep on getting drunk, but keep on continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. The word is pleuruste. Present, continuous, imperative. It means keep on being filled. It's present, continuous, also, by the way, passive voice. You, it, it, you are being filled. It isn't something you manufacture. God fills us with the Holy Spirit. That means that when we get filled with the Holy Spirit, God turns the faucet on. Now, I don't know how you were raised, but when I was raised, there were a number of household sins. And one of the household sins was to leave the faucet on. If anyone ever left the faucet on, it got a little, you know, condemnation. You go to the sink, you turn the faucet on, wash your hands, turn the faucet off, dry your hands and leave. This is not like that. Don't obey your mother on this. We're supposed to keep the faucet on. The faucet should be kept on. Now, in my own life, uh, I had a very profound, life-changing encounter with the Holy Spirit in September of 1977. 
I'll never forget the experience, uh, but I was filled to the brim and overflowing with the Holy Spirit. It, for me, it was every bit as powerful as Jesus breathing on me and saying, receive the Holy Spirit, or being there in the upper room and, and the tongues of fire coming down. And if you had said to me, in fact, it said to me for probably weeks or maybe months after that point, um, are you full of the Holy Spirit? Abs, I am good to go. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. I, mean, I was preaching to the rocks. I was sharing the gospel with anybody who would listen. I was, uh, I was a madman for Jesus. And, you know, I, kept, I thought that once the fire of God fell, once the wind blew in my life, I never dreamed the time would come when I would realize I'm kind of feeling dry as toast. And I realized what most of us already know is that we leak. We leak. We need to be refilled. That's why Paul says, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And a lot of times, especially if you have a seminary degree, and I, I know this, I've, been, I've lived this too, you know, where you go into the, um, the church and, uh, you know, there's time you get dry and you can, just, you can preach out of your training, you know? You know how to do good exegesis? You can, you can preach. You can do it. But there's something missing. Because preaching, as important as exegesis is, and I, I think everyone in our faculty would agree with this, as important it is to do good exegesis, do good IBS, David Bauer will be applauding in the back row if he was in your church. That is not enough if not also filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have to have that unction because it's always a divine event, not simply a human event when we preach the gospel. And so in verse 8, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and he proclaims them, that is the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that this formerly crippled man sent before you today completely healthy. And then Peter quotes Psalm 118. By the way, the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So here's Peter, through divine spiritual insight, understand that Psalm 118 is really a, a prophecy about Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. That happens through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And that's when he also says there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. That's the gospel in seed form. So when they saw the healing, they were, were told, annoyed. We don't like it who are annoyed. Verse 13, they told they saw their boldness. This is the first of three references to boldness. They saw their boldness despite being uneducated common men, and they were astonished. They went from being annoyed or perplexed to being astonished. They didn't have the degrees, they didn't have the training, but they saw something, God was doing something in them and through them, and they were astonished. Now, I don't think today too many people are astonished when they come to church. They're bored often. They're perplexed. I heard that, I heard the start of it's true, Jessica. I heard it when Jessica was eight, eight years old. She sat in a pew, just a small child, and it's not true, just pretend it's true for today. 
But I, this is like one of the, you know, Jessica Legrone, you know, like meta-narratives that floats around the seminary. But Jessica Legrone was in the pew, and she was listening to the sermon, taking notes. And apparently she did this a lot as a child, but she would take, write down you know, notes from the sermon, and she would say to herself, you know, I can do better than that. This, this can be improved on. A better illustration here would be better. God was shaping her. I like to feel that way. They go to church, you know, we could do better than that. And one of the great things that's missing is the unction of the Holy Spirit, the power of that. It joins with our scholarship. And then, of course, then what happens in verse 19, this is where the wisdom comes in. When they're admonished by them, he said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's bold statement, but it's also laced with wisdom. It shows respect for the authorities, because they're standing before their authorities, but they also, we're not going to wrestle with flesh and blood. We're going to appeal to a higher court. God will attest whether what we're saying is true, and even the Jewish authorities eventually acknowledge that point. So here you have not only the disruptive power for global witness in uh, these marginalized groups, but also now this discerning wisdom for faithful living. Now the power of this is the fact that in the incarnation, if Jesus is in Bethlehem, he couldn't be in Galilee. If Jesus is in Capernaum, he can't be over in the Decapolis. So as, as amazing as Jesus' ministry is, it's localized by virtue and the fact of the incarnation. That's why Christ says, greater things than these shall you do, because the particularized ministry of Jesus is universalized through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the church scatters everywhere, and Christ's presence becomes actualized everywhere through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So Christ is being made alive and powerful and and the unction is there to the Spirit in all of the particulars of wherever the church gathers. And that is amazing. That's why Jesus says, when you're brought before synagogue rulers and authorities, do not worry about how, how you'll defend yourselves, what you'll say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you will say. Now that is not in remotely denying the importance of good training. Uh, it's reminding us that despite good training, we also need the Holy Spirit to teach us and help us to give unction to the Word of God. They're released from custody, they return to their friends, and they, this huge worship service breaks out, and then they again quote the Psalms. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and plot together against the Lord and against an anointed one. And then they make, again, the application to Jesus. That Jesus is the one who is the anointed one whom the kings of the earth are taking their stand against. And the apostles pray, and they ask the Lord to continue to help them to speak the word of God with all boldness. There it is again. And then the Holy Spirit comes on them. The place is shaken. It's like another day of Pentecost, actually. We don't talk about it. Here it is. The place is shaken, just like we saw in Acts 2. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is Peter's fourth time. And he, they continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. There it is again. We're learning that the boldness of, the, of preaching is tied to the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the ability to proclaim God's word in the centrality of Jesus Christ. That's what marks all their preaching. 
We, of course, domesticated the gospel, and we have watered it into all kinds of other things, and we've lost the focus on it's about him, the triune God who works in our lives. Deal Moody also said, the Christian sees more on his knees or her knees than the philosopher on tiptoes. Okay, it was a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's typical 19th century kind of optimism, but it's pointing out there is a, a power if you have the word of God in your hand. Stanley Harawas, I'll close with this, the, the well-known Methodist ethicist and theologian from Duke, he's retired now, but he, taught, he told a really interesting story about what happened to him when he was in Edinburgh. And uh, having myself, uh, we lived in Edinburgh for, for three years. We, I love, I'm always, a, a, you know, just a sucker for a good Edinburgh story. But if you ever go to Scotland, uh, don't miss Edinburgh. It's a beautiful city. And they have, of course, uh, amazing uh, church structures there. But one of the features you'll find in a lot of the churches there is these uh, pulpits, these raised pulpits. You know, they're up in the air and you have a little stairway going up to the pulpits. And I've had the privilege of preaching in quite a few of those pulpits. It's kind of an awesome, in a holy right way, awesome thing to preach on those pulpits because you feel like that people obviously expect you to do something important if you go that high up, you know. <laughs> so anyway, um, he was asked, uh, Howard Wass was asked to preach. He was given the Gifford Lectures, a, a famous lectureship in Edinburgh. He was asked to preach at St. Mary's Cathedral in Edinburgh. It's the big Roman Catholic cathedral there. And so he tells the story of, of his shock when it came time to preach. And if you don't know what it's like preaching in Europe, it's very common to have um, sextons and various people who do things. Like they're always moving around doing things uh, during, and they follow certain kind of historical things. This is a practice they have practiced in St. Mary's to this present day, by the way, since the Reformation time, all right, since the 16th century. Uh, and what they do is the sexton... Uh, accompanies you up the, up the little stairway. He follows you, the preacher up there, or he leads you actually. He opens up the doorway to the pulpit and he lets the preacher in. He closes the door and he locks the door. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. And I can like just run out of here if I want to right now. You can't run out of that pulpit. And so Stanley Harawas said it was a really interesting feeling to be, uh, you know, to be locked into the pulpit. I was preaching uh, recently in London, and uh, they, they wanted to have the symbolism. They apparently had this information of the symbolism of the gospel, the prayers of the saints going up while you preached in heaven. They're interceding for you. And they had a person beneath me, like, shaking the incense shaker the whole time. I almost passed out. <laughs> but I kept saying, it's the prayers of the saints. It's the prayers of the saints. But they were like, we've done this since the 16th century. We're not going to stop, you know, today for you. This is like that. They just love these traditions, so they lock you in the thing. And so Stanley Harawas said, you know, it's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it, that they, they won't let you out of the pulpit until you preach the gospel. Now, I'm not advocating that we lock our preachers in the pulpit, <laughs> but I love the instinct. You know, go, up, go into the pulpit, preach the gospel. Don't leave until you do it. Don't leave until you do it. Make a beeline to the gospel. That's what D.L. Moody is teaching us. If you're preaching on Adam in the garden, it doesn't hurt to mention that Christ is the second Adam. If you're preaching on the man in the wilderness, why not point out that Jesus is the true manna from heaven? If, if you're preaching on Jonah in the belly of the whale, belly of the fish, why not remind us all that 
Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, Christ was in the belly of the earth for three days. Just as Jonah came out of that fish to preach the gospel to the nations, so Jesus came out of the empty tomb to preach the gospel to the nations. If you preach on the Psalms, don't ever let go of the psalm until you hear Jesus singing it with you. This is the great gift of Acts 4, where, where it's just the first of this series of sermons. We're learning something about apostolic preaching. And in whatever we do, don't forget the lessons of always pray that you're filled with the Spirit. Pray that you preach on Christ and preach with boldness. Thanks be to God. Amen.